Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, two presentations to City Council outline plans for developing downtown entertainment... Two presentations to City Council outline plans for developing downtown's entertainment district and the aging arena. What did Council think? Well, we'll talk about that. Also, a chance that we could be hearing about a new name joining the federal conservative leadership race. And many of us take clean water for granted. Unfortunately, that's not the case in many places in Ontario. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. It looks as if... In some way, shape, or form, Hamilton's downtown is going to go through some transformative changes in the next little while. The question is, exactly what is it going to look like and who's going to do it? Well, there were a couple of presentations uh, in front of City Council earlier this week, and uh, they've had the chance to digest some of that stuff. Uh, Jason Farr is the councillor for downtown for Ward 2. He joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to give us his perspective on this. Good morning, Jay. How are you doing today? Good. Happy Friday, Bill. Yeah, to you too. Uh, your thoughts, uh, just in, in broad strokes, Jay, about the, the presentations you saw, about the arenas, uh, convention center, et cetera, et cetera. On the presentations, the public presentations by the two uh, proponents, let's call them. Uh, one's not so much a consortia, the other very much is a consortia. Uh, I was very impressed. I think we were all impressed. Uh, there was uh, certainly a lot of... Uh, detail to uh to to consider and uh clearly both potential proponents uh were well prepared in their uh, presentation so it, it it was uh really great to see as a downtown councillor but as a hamiltonian who is uh, uh very much aware that we have some aging entertainment facilities uh, this is all good stuff Listen, I wanted to ask you right off the top here because as I was reading, and Andrew Drescher wrote about this today in The Spectator, if anybody saw that article, uh, and he talks about Vrancourt uh, and about the, the other group too, the Carmen's group, the urban group, uh, but we were told earlier this week that there was a third group that was interested and had at least sent a letter of interest to somebody, and that the, hosp- uh, the Pearl Hospitality Group. Have you heard from these people? Well, we, we would have received a, a brief... Uh, I don't even know if we can call it a term sheet, but I guess we should because that's what we asked potential proponents to send in uh, when we did the marketing call out through our real estate division. Uh, They did not. uh, My understanding was at committee earlier this week, they had registered to speak and then they pulled out. I think that's what the clerk shared with us. So uh, for the public presentation, of course, we only saw the two potential proponents. So are they out of the game now, or are they just asking for more time? Do you have any clarity on that? I, I can't confirm or deny whether or not they're out of the game. And certainly you referenced uh, Andrew Dreschel's uh, uh, column today, and I, I will say this, Bill, and I think you'll appreciate this as well. I am very, very challenged to think of an occasion where accuracy has been an issue with that uh, storied writer. So... I'll only say that and uh, let people uh, read between the lines on that. All right, all right. Well, this is the reason I'm asking is because this, yeah. the council direction, after you guys uh, went in camera to talk about some of the, the nitty-gritty details here, the staff direction was to, to negotiate with these two groups that we're just talking about now. There was no mention of a third one. So it kind of tells me that the, the council has already narrowed the focus. Uh, council has definitely narrowed the focus. The council has definitely uh, uh, issued... Um, uh, an order, if you will, to our staff. Uh, with that comes a timeline. It's a very definitive timeline that should make a lot of people happy, including our very good friend and uh, philanthropist and uh, passionate Hamilton uh, 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 sports guy, uh, Andrew uh, and Michael Andlauer. So uh, that I can share. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, it, it uh, involves proponents, pluralized, 
and it's uh, it's a definitive timeline. With that, I'll get to Michael and Eindler in a couple of seconds here. In the story that, of course, that we broke earlier this week, that uh, he's already yes. had discussions with the city of Burlington. Right on the day we saw the delegates. Exactly, exactly. Yes. Uh, but but with these two groups here now again uh, according to the reporting in Andrew's column here today, uh, staff was already asking to move forward with the negotiations with Frank, uh, the, with the Darko's group here in a situation like this. Uh, what do they know that you don't know? Because obviously you you change that direction. Well, I you see again we're getting into an area where that staff's recommendation was in the form of uh, a confidential document. So I, I'm I'm challenged. Like clearly. Uh, Bill uh, and I, and and you know I'm not you know dismissing it or or I I actually expected that there would be lots of information that we heard from behind closed doors as uh, part of uh, your questions today and articles in the Hamilton Spectator but I I'm personally uh, I'm hesitant to get into any great detail on what recommendations came our way as part of a confidential document and Bill I, I mean I'm not trying to dodge your question on and, and it's a really good question and I completely understand it. I said what I said about challenge to find issues with accuracy with Andrew Dressel. So if anybody reads the article, you can easily read between the lines. But the reality is you don't want to jeopardize the bids either. You don't want to jeopardize this process. And you don't want to put a, you know, a city in a position where you know, we're in a very good place right now as it relates to a mandate of council to reinvigorate our entertainment facilities at no cost to the taxpayer and, 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 and by extension, the, the vitalization of not only our uh, revitalization of our downtown, but our city. So I'm, I'm a little, I want to be a bit careful on what staff recommended, but, uh, you know, I mean, you're, <laughs> you're not straying, let's put it this way with your questions, but I, I, I'm hesitant to answer specifically what was recommended as a, as a closed session document. Because well, of the, all those the reason I'm asking this, uh, well, two purposes. First of all, I understand it was behind closed doors and it's confidential, but I mean, nothing stays confidential at City Hall very long anymore, apparently. So if somebody was going to leak it, and apparently they did. So, But that horse is out of the barn now. So, uh, And if you're reticent to talk about it, okay, I'll, I'll take it a word. You don't want to be the one that, uh, that gets censured by your councilmates for letting this stuff out and giving all the details. But there are some things that I think are, are plainly obvious here. Uh, mm-hmm. First of all, with staff's let me put comfort level, shall we say, with Darko's uh, uh, bid here. It tends to indicate to uh, to anybody who's reading this that uh, that they've been in discussion for quite some time. This didn't just fall out of the sky, uh, and uh, the other groups maybe not so much. So maybe there's a there's a familiarity there, also with the fact that he's done an awful lot of investment down there. Does he? It would, it would indicate to an awful lot of people, and myself included, that Darko's got the inside track here. Okay, well, you know, that's great. Good question, and I'm glad you asked it, actually, because I would suggest that there are two proponents, uh, potential proponents to, to, to carry out our mandate, who've had equal time. They've had, uh, in, in the same window of time, um, a, 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 a good chunk of, of uh, time and, and uh, meetings with our, our real estate division, economic, economic development staff, to, to assist them in developing the term sheets that they submitted and that council asked for. So it's, it, I, I would suggest that Rancor and Hamilton Urban Precinct, uh, those two, uh, uh, have really done their due diligence, and I'm very happy that both have done their due diligence. And I think both took very much advantage over the last five to six months uh, since the resolution when council said to our real estate division, go out and create these term sheets and come back to us and tell us what outside proponents are suggesting they can do to fulfill our mandate. Both, I would suggest, have had equal opportunity. 
All right. So I, I had a confidential conversation with one of your councilmates about this. Uh, and again, they were they were doing the same thing you're doing, trying to talk about this in broad strokes. But I mean, you guys are well beyond broad strokes at this stage. Uh, at least, you know, behind closed doors you are anyway. Uh, and, and this counselor suggested that between the two bids, uh, the one troublesome thing that he felt or she felt about this is that uh, the the one group, of course, uh, and that being Mary Frankovich and the Rancor group, basically said, we got the money right here. You know, we <laughs> slam it right down on the table if you want to see it. The other group, of course, uh, seems to indicate that they're going to be looking for federal and provincial money for this, which you know is a very, very difficult procedure to try to get any money from any level of government at this time. Uh, and in, in that counselor's mind, that made the Rancor bid that much more attractive because the money's already there. Uh, how do you feel about that? Well, sure. And now you're actually talking about uh, something that we heard in that group's presentation. So it was, I believe, yeah. Well, both these guys, Jay, as you know, both proponents here have been on this show and they've outlined their oh, bids. Yeah. You followed it very well, and I'm trying to make clear that distinguish between a whole lot of stuff that is actually public versus recommendations and staff reports that were were confidential because of its a contractual. Well, it's, it's, it's when, when, when P.J. Mercandy was here outlining the urban right. prison groups, uh, he, he was quite out, out, you know, spoken about the fact that, yeah, it's a great group, and he said they've already talked to Philomena Tassi from the federal government yep. and Donna Skelly from the provincial government about this. That's right. so, so that's that's common knowledge at this stage. But when yep. you have to rely on that, uh, that instead of simply having private sector money to finance this whole thing, does that, does that create a problem in your mind? Well, I mean, it... it God bless him, and he also said that they were fruitful conversations, and that was very much public knowledge. I first revealed on your program, I heard the program. It's now up to him in the time frame that we've allotted to secure the $80 million. I think it was $80 million, Bill. Correct me if I'm wrong. I want to say 80 or 120 I believe it's $80 million from federal and provincial, and I think a lot of it was associated to the convention facility. Yeah. So, great that you had fruitful conversations. Now, council has resolved to look at one or more uh, potential proponents to carry out our mandate, and anything you're, you're suggesting may occur needs to be definitive by the end of the timeline that we've produced to come back with these memorandums of understanding. These, these, this, this amount of days, which is also part of a Dressel article today, uh, is definitive. Uh, at that day after... All of those things that you may have suggested, whether in a term sheet, which is which is confidential for the reasons of the private groups, and of course for the for the competitive nature of the the, the, the process, uh, they the, all of that needs to be reality, uh, so council can make a very informed decision. So all of the speculative stuff or all of the the the, the, the dreams need to become reality in the short order, the short window that the, the council has allotted. So things are really moving, but things have to be much more definitive than, than just, you know, presentations of possible partnerships and possible funding from possible uh, other levels of government. It must be definitive in a, in a short order. All right, I want to get back to, to Michael Andlar for uh, just a second, if I could. Uh, with the the knowledge now that everybody has, of course, that, uh, that they first heard on this show, that uh, he's ha had some discussions, shall we say. I don't know if you can label those negotiations yet, but some pretty good discussions uh, with the city of Burlington. Uh, and, and Michael has always maintained, uh, when he, we've had him on the program here, that the rationale here is that he can't wait forever. He can't use this facility forever, and he can't look around and wait and just, you know, governments move slowly. So with that in mind, and again, I'll go back to some of the stuff that is already open there. Mario Frankovich right. from Vancouver told me this. He says, if we get the council deal here, 
He says, we can have a new arena up there within 12 to 14 months. Now, I didn't hear that kind of time frame from the other group. Is that a factor for you, the expediency of actually finishing the project? But it's a factor for me, absolutely. Definitely a factor for Michael. He did say, Mario, a uh, uh, very respected uh, finance guy in Virgin Bus Securities, uh, representing Grantcor, 12 to 14 months. And the other thing he might, I, I believe he said publicly, Bill, was that it wouldn't disrupt the Hamilton Bulldogs season. So our prime tenant would still be able to play uh, maybe a few construction spots where, where fans are diverted for that one season. But uh, 12 to 14 months. I'll tell you this about Rancor, and I do not want to uh, make any suggestion that I have any decision one way or the other on two proponents that we're obviously talking about now. I have witnessed in my 10 years on council someone who does work in an expeditious fashion. Who it was, it, Clearly, it's their mission. You're looking at the fifth phase of five phase of developments that for me in the first year of, of being a councillor was nothing but a drawing on a, on literally a drawing on a napkin uh, that has now become reality. And, of course, other projects that have happened not only in Hamilton through this company, but across Ontario. So they, they are, they're a proven doer, absolutely. So when they say publicly, we can do this, we can fulfill uh, our objectives and also your mandate within 12 to 14 months, that, that's proven that they their, their ability to do that. Now, on the other side of that, we would have to prioritize from a planning uh, uh, a policy uh, perspective uh, that, you know, we worked expeditiously for the approvals in the building department and the planning department and everything else to help them make that dream a reality if and when they would be the successful uh, proponent. There are obviously the three facilities here, the entertainment facilities, the, the, the concert hall, the, the convention center and the arena. But, of course, the two groups that you're talking about here uh, are, are also talking about building other things, office space and condos and things of this nature, too. Are you looking at this, because both of them seem to be the same way, is this going to be a staged project? Uh, in a, you're not going to do everything at once. Clearly, you can't do that. But if it's a staged project, is the arena the number one priority? The arena was always the number one priority, and even if you go back to the Ernst Young report, the suggestion was to uh, counsel, and that report helped inform us and continues to help inform us, by the way, that that would be um, uh, you know, the first thing we would look at. Now, but again, when you look at the public pitches that we heard the other day, same day you heard from Michael Anlauer about his meeting with uh, Marion Mead Ward, in Burlington, the uh, reality is that 12 to 14 months, from my understanding, uh, from what I saw from the public pitch from the Rancor side, was that was everything. So, um, you know, there's absolutely uh, um, uh, an understanding by our proponents that we, 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 we want to see definitive budgets, we want to see definitive timelines. So, don't don't quote me on the on the twelve to fourteen months uh, for everything, but I'm almost certain that that's what I heard from the one proponent. Uh, regardless of that, I mean, you know, clearly uh, we know that both camps, if we're focusing on just the two right now, Bill, have the wherewithal and the ability just by the names uh, associated and the names attached. And I'm focusing on Brantford, but certainly the Urban Precinct Group with Fengate and with Leuna and with all of their partners, Meridian and everyone else. If they can pull all that together and make it official, rather than just a pitch or a term sheet at this point, in the time frame that we've allotted as a council, um, you know, there, there, there's there's more than enough competent entities are on both sides to to make uh, the expeditious nature of this uh, file a reality. When are we going to hear some news on this? I got thirty seconds. Oh, I almost said it. I almost said it. So now you're getting into which what's the time frame that we we attach to coming back with the MOU. Uh, I'm going to suggest very, very soon, 
And again, I will open the way uh, I will close the way I opened with you. I am very challenged to find inaccuracies in Andrew Dreschel's story career. Jason Fire, the downtown counselor, <laughs> uh, evasive, but sin- but, sincere, but sincere. But uh, yeah. sincere. We'll, we'll talk again soon, Jay. Thanks for this. Uh, I'm sh- I'm sure we will. Have a great day. You too. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Right now, I want to uh, bring John Iverson to the program. John, of course, is a National Post uh, columnist uh, dealing with public affairs and uh, politics. And, boy, there's a lot to talk about in politics these days, obviously, especially with the Conservative Party, with uh, Andrew Scheer stepping down in the Conservative leadership race. Uh, and a, a name from the past has popped up, and John writes about it in the, in the Post today. Uh, and uh, always a pleasure to have you on the program, John. Thanks so much for the time today. Problem, Bill. Uh, I, I heard this a couple of days ago, too, and I thought, I can't be much to it. And then I saw your piece today. Uh, is is there a buzz around the Ottawa these days about John Baird maybe making a comeback? Well, I think there's a dissatisfaction in the Conservative Party that Peter McKay seems to be running away, away with this thing. Um, McKay handed in the $300,000 entry fee and the 3,000 3, signatures of support that are needed nearly two months ahead of the deadline. Uh, and it was almost a sort of... Uh, a bold move, but bordering on arrogance, sending out a message to other candidates that, you know, nobody could match him when it comes to fundraising and organizing. Um, Aaron O'Toole might disagree with that, former <laughs> Veterans Affairs Minister, uh, but really the rest of the pack are way, way back. Um, but there are a bunch of people who were who would probably have been well disposed to Pierre Poiliev, who, who pulled out, uh, who see themselves as sort of true blue conservatives, and a lot of them are making noise that they're not happy with the current field and they would like to see somebody coming in who would more be, I suppose, a more obvious heir to Stephen Harper. And Baird certainly fits the bill. A lot of people in the West feel they don't have a horse in this race. Even though Baird is from Ontario, uh, they see him as this kind of red meat conservative who would... Who would uh, be their representative. Well, we know John Baird pretty well here in Ontario, of course, because he, he cut his teeth, uh, well, in the Mike Harris government, uh, elected here. Uh, and he was one of the three major uh, ministers that left the Harris cabinet to, to run federally. And he made, he really made a name for himself during his time there, didn't he? Yeah, I mean, he was a, a senior minister. He, he was the environment minister. He was the treasury board president. And he ended up being a foreign affairs minister. So, you know, these are, these are senior posts. He was well regarded. He... Uh, performed pretty well in each of them. Um, if you remember, at, uh, I think it was when he was at, uh, he was also transport and infrastructure at one point which yeah. was during the recession. And he was the guy who was in charge of the, the bailout fund, all the infrastructure money that was spread across the country. Now, obviously, handing out that amount of money that quickly, there was huge potential for, for scandal and there was none. So I think he got, he got uh, some kudos for for his performance in government. He kind of seemed to create a reputation here as as, as the the go to guy for Stephen Harper. I mean, you're right. Uh, the environment ministry was uh, Verona Ambrose. Did not she kind of stumbled, I think, right out of the gate in that first government, and he stepped in there, got that fixed. And it just seems as any time there's a problem with the ministry, Harper would put Baird in there, and, and the job would get done pretty effectively anyway. Yeah, I think that's probably fair. I mean, the uh, the environment they, they never actually got to to um, Regulating the oil and gas industry, which yeah. was always the big, the big one, but I don't, I don't think they ever intended to. But he, he certainly kept a lid on things. Uh, he came out opposing carbon taxes and put pretty lightweight restrictions on the oil and gas industry. Um, they were never regulated in, a, in any draconian fashion. So that I think gives him some kudos in the West, where they felt he might have shut down the industry. 
the other aspect of this too, and uh, you've written about this uh, in in the past weeks, uh, because the story of uh, this leadership race so far, anyway, seems to be the people that have said thanks but no thanks, and and uh, much to the chagrin, I guess, of an awful lot of people that are looking for something, I guess, of the Stephen Harper ilk. Uh, you know, the Rana Ambrose, uh, uh, a, a number of other, Pierre that Paul Everett just mentioned, and a couple of others that they thought were going to be strong contenders for this, and they've taken a pass. Right, so Paul Evan and, and, and Ambrose would have been the two that would have probably had a Harper's blessing. Um, I think Baird would too, but I think Baird will be another one that disappoints them. Um, he's made a, a fairly lucrative transition in the private sector. He's a, a director on numerous boards, Canadian Pacific Railway, Barrett Gold, and I just think that he's um, he probably could do without the, the scrutiny on his uh, uh, his uh, professional and private life that would come with being a leadership contender. Well, it, it, once guys leave, or women leave, anyway, do they tend to come back? I mean, you don't rarely hear about about these comebacks. I mean, he's done his thing. He's done provincial. He's done uh, And you're right, he's making a fair bit of money now. He's probably got a pretty good life. And you're, like, you're not under the microscope when you're working in the private sector. Not so much, anyway. No, and you know, but but others like Peter McKay have, have done four years in the private sector and just decided the politics is still in their blood and they want to come back and have another go. So I don't think there's a golden rule in this. Uh, it would surprise me though if he came, if Baird came back. What is is the problem with Peter McKay? I'm I'm hearing a lot of rumblings. I know he had a bad week from a PR standpoint, uh, walking away from the uh, the TV interview and a couple of the <laughs> statements he's released on this right now. I, I'm getting the sense, John, that there's a lot of angst about Peter McKay as 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 the the out front leader on this situation right now, and some people aren't comfortable with that. No, I mean, you know, frankly, I failed to see how it would be such a disaster. I mean, we would have the most probably the most experienced leader of the opposition we've ever had, or certainly one of them. I mean, he was a government minister for for 10 years. So, you know, I think that uh, he's certainly rusty. I saw last night somebody suggested, you know, you might want to sharpen your skates before you get back in the ice. <laughs> I think there's plenty of evidence that his, his skates are kind of rusted at the moment, uh, and he's a bit rusty. So I think he needs to get, uh, needs to get um, up to speed a little bit more. He probably needs a, a bit of a refresh in the campaign team. But at the end of the day, you know, the idea that he's this some kind of liberal light uh, red Tory, I'm not just so sure that the evidence supports that. I mean, when he was the justice minister, he int- introduced some pretty red meat justice bills. So um, while there are, there's a noisy uh, subsection of people who are complaining about him, I mean, what's interested me is the fact that the people I've talked to are very senior in the party and they're not happy with him. Uh, and these are the people, some of the people who sat around the cabinet table with him. And they felt that he, one person said to me that uh, he kind of fell back on this old boy charm, that he didn't do the work particularly, uh, that he never learned French. Um, you know, there, are, there were good reasons why these, these people feel that he's, he's not the, the, the perfect candidate for the job. But I do think that if he does get the job, then they'll fall in line behind him because, um, you know, it's... If you were, he, he is likable. There's not one person I've spoken to who said he's not a good guy. So, you know, is it a, a bad thing being a good guy when you're trying to win the votes of people who are not necessarily disposed towards you? I don't think so. And he's got a wealth of experience. And I, I, I you're right, John. All the years I interviewed him, and many times while he was in government, I never got the impression he was a red Tory. I, he, he, you know, I think he bought right into to the Stephen Harper agenda. I think that's very similar to his agenda as well. Uh, and he seemed quite comfortable doing it. 
Yeah, I mean, I think I, I interviewed him a couple of weeks ago and, and asked him this, and he said, you know, once you get, we all pretty much agree on, uh, you know, the military, on on fiscal conservatism, on uh, criminal justice, and then we kind of splinter a little bit when it comes to some of the more social issues. And, but he's not the only candidate, for example, who voted to uh, not to reopen the same-sex debate in 2006. John Baird also voted against reopening the same-sex debate in 2006. So, you know, I don't think there's anything there that you could particularly point at if you were a, you know, red meat conservative, true blue conservative, whatever, however you want to call it, and say, you know, this guy is not one of us. In fact, he was a, a pretty loyal soldier to Harper for 10 years, did not run against him, crucially, in 2004, and, uh, you know, I think did most things that were asked of him over that period of time. So is there a comfort level then with the Western faction of the party? Uh, because obviously, the, you know, the, the guys from the other side of the country right now, and uh, and they feel pretty comfortable, I think, the fact that, you know, the power, the center of power rally seems to have been in the, the Western provinces really, really for both the last 12 years. Yeah, I think that that's really um, uh, McKay's big problem is that he just has not convinced people in the West that, that uh, he's their guy. And I think this morning, Jason Kenney has come out and said he, he likes to see Baird get in. Uh, I, I don't know whether that's in response to this, this article I've written or not, but um, CBC is now reporting that. So who knows? I mean, I think, uh, you know, would Jason Kenney be happier with Baird than McKay? Yes. Could he live with McKay? Probably. Well, they wouldn't have much choice. But with that in mind, though, John, and I, I tend to agree with you, I don't think Baird's going to come back. Uh, you know, once he seems pretty comfortable with what he's doing, and, and you know, he could jump back into the fray right now. And let's face it, you're not coming back to be the prime minister, not yet anyway. I mean, you're going to sit in opposition for who knows how long, a couple of years maybe. And, uh, you know, you really want to take that, that risk again. But if not Baird, uh, does that mean that the, the disgruntled folks that you've talked to in the upper echelons of the party are going to continue the search? Well, I think that they would reluctantly come in behind Erin O'Toole. Now, it may be that O'Toole has, a, if that were to happen, and, and let's say that some of the social conservatives who are out there, uh, you know, they, there are three, I think, three social conservative candidates in the race right now, they will drop off the ballot one by one, you would imagine. And, uh, you know, I think anybody looking at this race at the moment would think it would be O'Toole and McKay at the end of the day. Um, and if enough of those social conservative votes come in behind O'Toole and a lot of, enough of the disgruntled true blue Tory votes come in behind O'Toole, then maybe he has enough to to uh, to pip McKay. I think that's that's the interesting thing now. If nobody else comes into the race, um, would all these other forces coalesce around Aaron O'Toole? Is there a dark horse candidate from out west? I mean, I'm hearing Brad Wall's name, and I, I don't hear a whole lot of push about that, but it's, he seems to come up in just about every one of these conversations. Yeah, I don't. I, I haven't heard a lot about uh, anybody else. Um, John Williamson, the MP from New Brunswick. Is, sure. For, yeah, from the Taxpayers Coalition years ago, yeah. Right. He's, he's uh, taking a serious look at this, and he's got a campaign team. You know, this is not just him and a couple of guys from the riding noodling around. He's, he's actually got... Uh, real people who've got uh, organizational experience because people don't I don't think appreciate how big a logistical exercise this is you you need to have reach across the country to get these signatures and to get the money you need that from I think seven provinces so you know you need to have a, a machine in place uh, he's looking at that he's not a westerner but he might be able he might be the proxy for some of those votes too but 
but whether he would have enough name recognition to get above McKay or O'Toole would be it would seem doubtful to me. You know, John. The other element to this thing too is you're absolutely right. I mean, as it stands right now, Peter McKay looks like the the front runner and uh, is acting like the front runner at the same time. But in this same process, in the same spot in this process, back with the last leadership campaign, I think everybody was thinking it was Maxime Bernier that was going to coast to the finish line, and and you know, you know how that ended. Well, I'm not I'm not sure Max ever had as big a lead as Peter. Um, you know, I think there are about 24 MPs or 22 MPs that have come out in support of candidates so far, and 20 of them have come out for McKay. Um, back in 2017, Bernie had very few caucus endorsements. Um, in fact, Aaron O'Toole had more, the most, and I think Shearer had the next most. So it was never clear to anybody that, that Bernie was running away with it. If you remember, Kevin O'Leary was in the race as well. Yeah. Um, so it was a little bit of a sort of pack of four or five front runners at that time and it was only in the last few days that it seemed Bernie was going to clinch it and then in the last day that he didn't. So it's not quite analogous and I think at the moment um, McKay would have a far greater lead over his rivals than, than Bernie ever did in 2017. John, how important are those endorsements from MPs? Not very important to be honest. I think somebody's done some analysis on, on how many of them were converted. Uh, it really relies on the, on the, the, the caucus member motivating the people in his writing association to, to or his or her writing association to um to follow them um and that does not always happen but i think it is um it's better having them than not having them put it that way uh i got an email from somebody the other day when we were having the same discussion and, and they said is stephen harper going to get involved in this and i i, I got the, the the feeling they didn't mean as a candidate i don't think he's going to come back although some people have floated his name but is is he going to take a side on this or is he just going to sit back and let this happen I would be amazed if he came out and took a side. It would be a very, um, it would suggest that things are really badly wrong in the party if he came out and took a side. Because presumably if he came out and took a side, it would not be in favor of McKay. Interesting piece on the National Post today. Uh, John Iverson, uh, a favorite of red meat conservatives. John Baird hasn't closed the door on leadership. Ed. Always a great read and always a great time when you come on the program, John. Thanks so much. Thanks a lot, Bill. Have, Have a good day. weekend. John Iverson Bye. from the National Post. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. There's a town hall going to be held uh, by the uh, NDP with regard to water quality, water protection, and what we can do about this. Now, this is very poignant, obviously, in many, many communities right across the province, even here in Hamilton. Uh, you remember Sewergate? Uh, yeah, the billions of liters of water that was dumped in here. Without anybody's knowledge, well, it wasn't nobody's knowledge. The city council knew about it, but I digress. Anyway, two of the participants uh, who are driving this program are with us here in studio. Sandy Shaw, of course, we know her as the uh, MPP for Hamilton West Ancaster Dundas. Good to see you again. Nice to be here. And uh, Salma Makwa is also here, MPP from uh, what's now? Your writing is Kiwetnung. Okay, now where exactly is that? Give me a. Kiwetnung uh, is uh, located in uh, northwestern Ontario and. Um, uh, right by the Manitoba border, all the way up to oh. James Bay. So, well, you got a hike to get to work every day. <laughs> yes, it's uh, it's uh, it, yeah, it's uh, it's uh, some people refer it as t- as remote, and uh, coming down here, you know, like for me, it's a uh, remote. Uh, Hamilton's remote for me. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you could, no, you lose perspective on that stuff, though, don't you, Sandy? I mean, you know, we're so close here, and I know the MPPs we've known all the time. I mean, it's an hour drive. I mean, I, you still you know do that, but some of these guys, I mean, like like Saul. I remember when Howard Elliott was, the, was uh, still in, in government, and, and I said, you know, how big is your riding? And he says, I have to take a plane from one end of it to the other. I can't drive. It takes too long. I mean, I put, you get to northern Ontario, boy, you've, you're, you know, 
Uh, it's huge, and there's a lot of open space. And the first question I've got is something I'm probably sure you've heard a thousand times. Why in God's name can't levels of government do something about water quality in your communities? Every government talks about it. It's in every throne speech, and nothing gets done. Um, I think to make it very brief, it's uh, there's just no will. And uh, I, I say that because I know um, because uh, because of my writing, like uh, there's a lot of uh, uh, I have uh, uh, about 24 flying communities that I'm responsible for, and uh, that are part of my writing. And um, and one of the things that uh, um, the federal government is responsible for uh, whatever program services, uh, you know, whether it's um, you know infrastructure. On, on that, and when I'm down here in Queens Park trying to get the uh, awareness or uh, get the province to help uh, with the on-reserve um, infrastructure, and they tell me that's a, a, a provincial, that's a federal responsibility. So they have they have this the, this jurisdictional uh, finger thing. pointing. That's yeah, what it is. Jurisdictional, uh, you know, uh, hot potato on that <laughs> the health and the lives of people are played upon uh, because of that. So. And I think uh, when we talk about water specifically, um, you know, I believe it should be a, uh, a non-jurisdictional issue. You know, absolutely. It, it, should, it shouldn't matter if it's uh, federal. It shouldn't matter if it's provincial. And not only that, it's a, a non-partisan issue. No matter what, and I say that because I mean, water for all of us is it's a, it's a human right. It should be a human right. And you know, I, I have one community uh, that has been on the boil water advisory for 25 years. And you know, uh, and and every now and then, it, it, it you know we see the stories on in the news, and and you know the camera crews will rush up there, and we'll see the the, the terrible conditions that they're under, and politicians will show up, and you know uh, well, we're going to get this. They go away a couple of yeah. days later. They, it just fades away, but the conditions don't change. No, they don't, and that's uh, that that that's the reality uh, that uh, that we live in. That's the reality my communities live in. Not only ju- not only that, and it's not just the far north communities, but also it's the First Nations in Ontario. Absolutely, and uh, it's uh, and that's what I'm you know bringing awareness to the, this issue of you know how we take drinking water for granted. Like I mean, when I sit uh, at Queens Park with Sandy, you know. Um, you know, I'll raise my hand, and if, if I want wa- water, uh, the pages will bring water to me, and, you know, I'll take a drink. And, you know, that's how easy it is to for us to, you know, how we take water for granted. And I have communities that have, you know, drink from bottled water for all of their lives. But it's uh, as bad as conditions are, as Saul is explaining them, Sandy, it's... Uh even even in a community like this, and, and even southern Ontario communities, there's a concern about water quality here, too. Absolutely. And I think, you know, I've learned, I, I mean, I have the pleasure to sit beside Saul, and I hear the struggles that he have, has with his community. And really, it dawned on me that we all do take our water for granted. And, you know, we have communities all across Ontario, uh, you know, Tottenham, they have a carcinogen in their, their water. Here in Hamilton, we've got lead pipe. You know, we have, as you said, sewer gate. And what, what has become clear to me is that we just take for granted that we're going to turn on the tap, the water will be clean, the water will be tested. And in fact, it, it, it's become more and more apparent that there's no one person or one level of government that is taking responsibility for our water, 
that is monitoring it, that is protecting us. And so I, I think that that's why, uh, you know, this is becoming more and more an important issue, a, a, an issue of, uh, you know, human right, but an issue of, you know, just day-to-day uh, necessities that we just think is all are always going to be there for us. And it's clearly not the case. But it, there's, there's so many layers to this discussion. I, and clearly health is, is one of them. Public Absolutely. health is one. Uh, and, and Saul's outlined some of that, the impact that it has. on To live 25 years with a wa- boiled water advisory is just, it's disgusting. But there's an environmental aspect to this as well. Uh, and and we saw that with uh, with the sewer gate. You know, the was it twenty six billion liters of water sewage being dumped into uh, our heart. Well, the, it, all over the place. Mm-hmm. And I talked, I, you know, I talked to the Burlington mayor, Marion Mead Ward, about this, and and where of course regional chairman Gary Carr, they were outraged by this because I said that's our that's that's the two. You know, you're affecting our communities as well. I mean, they all contribute to the cleanup of Coots right. Paradise in places like this, and th- nobody knew. Nobody knew. Well, except the people on Hamilton City Council. And the province knew as well. Yeah. Let's be clear about that. So there's two levels of government that failed us. The province knew exactly the same day that the city knew. The city didn't disclose, and the province didn't disclose. And they didn't disclose to the RBG, Royal Botanical Gardens. You know, 90% of that is RBG. They didn't even let them know what they were dealing with. They didn't let, as you say, the Mayor Mead know what they were dealing with. And so, you know, here's a perfect example of of this uh, this diffuse responsibility. I mean, that's what Saul struggles with. You, you know, at some point, really do people in Ontario care, whether it's a federal jurisdiction, whether it's municipal, whether it's provincial? We expect, as residents and, uh, and citizens of Ontario, that someone is taking ownership to make sure that we protect our water, that we have the right to know what's in our water. How do you approach something like this? Because, let's face it, and I don't need to tell you guys this, but there's a political aspect of yes. this, too, depending on where this happens, uh, how quickly governments will respond to something like this. And, and I'm wondering if that's at the, the root of a lot of the concern that we're expressing here today, is that uh, governments, you know, they don't vote for us. So, you know, you know we're, trying to be, we're, we're trying to cut costs here. It's all about cutting costs. Walkerton was all about cutting costs. And people died. People and no, no, and, and look, I know, I know some people out there that, would, that voted for Mike Harris are going to say, oh, no, he wasn't responsible. And yeah, they, they had a public inquiry about it, and, and it was found that, yes, his actions were contributing to that. He didn't put the stuff in there. We know that, okay, that was done at scene, but the provincial inspectors that were supposed to be overseeing all that were gone. They were fired, laid off. So as soon as you start taking away layers of what they call red tape, uh, which I think is, is what they basically are standards, whether it's water quality, construction quality, whatever the case might be, uh, you run the risk of stuff like this happening. You know, I, I hate to say this, but instead of going forward, I think this government is dragging us backwards on some of these things. I mean, they call it red tape, but these are just the things that keep us safe and that we expect to be there. And, you know, I think that when you talk to individual people from Ontario, when they hear uh, what it goes on in First Nations communities, when I sit beside Saul and he gets up in the house and asks these questions, you know, the government pays lip service to this. And individual Ontarians would say, this is a tragedy. It is, it's just an injustice and we need to correct it but just like Saul said where is the will to do this you know there there just seems to be this ability to brush it off and you know what we're hoping is that finally for once and for all that we this that this provincial government the very least will uh will be really in some way shamed into dealing doing what we expect our governments to do which is to protect us and to protect our water but we only talk about it, Saul, when, uh, well, you talk about it all the time, of course, and, and some of the other elected representatives that re- represent some of those communities up there try to bring it up there. But uh, you need a pulpit, and you need somebody to listen to you. 
Yes, it seems that, uh, you know, like I've been, um, you know, raising these issues, uh, you know, like over the last uh, 18 months or so since I've been in Queen's Park. But but I think, uh, you know, like I, I mean, for me to be able to raise these issues, you know, elevate the profile, like, say, uh, you know, like water, for example, is, you know, um, I mean, uh, there's... Uh, um, people at Queen's Park, the decision makers. Uh, uh, it's my role to pa- to try to edu- educate people to do an awareness program of what's happening up north. And I mean, this is Ontario, this is Canada, this is 2020, and it's still happening whereby uh, people don't have access to clean water and we cannot uh, do away with, uh, you know, uh, keep on playing that jurisdictional ping pong on, uh, on these issues. And I know uh, some of the um, legislative uh, the p- legislative legislation or policy that uh, you know like say access to clean water or environmental issues uh, sometimes uh, only on municipalities but not on first nations that's the that's the issue itself and uh, the federal department uh, the federal government does not have the same applied uh, policies or uh, legislation that will maintain those uh, make sure that there's cl- uh, procedures or uh, policies that are in place to have access to clean water so it's uh, it's, a, it's a very significant issue and again that's why it shouldn't be a jurisdictional issue mm-hmm. but it's but to that it's all it's look at, it's bureaucratic red tape and you know this because I mean yeah. you've made inquiries both of you have uh, it's not just the ping pong as you described it between federal and provincial governments. Even when you finally get on a layer of government, for instance, the federal government, they bounce you around from one ministry to the other. Exactly. Well, it's not really our responsibility. Go see those guys down the hall, uh, and and then they'll t- send you to a third, and on and on it goes. I mean, it, it's got to be awfully frustrating like this. Nobody says, yeah, let's just you know, this is an issue that needs to be fixed. Doesn't matter what department it comes from. You know, yeah. whether it's the Ministry of the Environment, the, whatever it's going to be, Aboriginal Affairs, do what you want. Just do it. Yes, and, that, and that's what I talk about, the will, right? Like, there's no will. Like, I mean, uh, I think every, every now and then a minister will come and then they have this will that they want to change. But uh, there's a there's a machinery of government that operates as well, the bureaucracy. And sometimes uh, those processes do not allow that pros- those things, those changes to happen. And, you know, if they want to uh, get rid of all the boil water advisories in northern Ontario or even um, and uh, even in uh, uh, the, the pro- in First Nations you know the First Nations mm-hmm. in Ontario like if it's cost if it costs six billion dollars like, you know that's how much it will cost like I don't and so it, there's a lot of factors that come into play and it's just it's just like there's just it, no will if, I mean it really if this was happening in downtown Toronto or even Hamilton or Kingston major g- communities this wouldn't be allowed to go on they would fix this uh, immediately so it's not that it's n- it's not that it's not possible it's not that ministries and levels of government can't get together to address this they just don't take it seriously and they've been allowed to get away with it for for such a long time and I would like to remain hopeful but really it's only going to get worse as the climate crisis gets worse you know the whole issue of, of uh, you know who what communities are most impacted by climate change and I think that you know this is a government that seems to be asleep at the switch when it comes to climate change um, I, I'm hoping that the pressure that we're trying to put on will make them to understand this is all connected you know climate change their lack of, a, of any kind of credible plan their lack of investment in infrastructure I mean they allow Nestle to take billions of liters of water from an aquifer that's drying up you know I'm really hoping that all of these issues will come to a head and the government will take action, you know, and that's why we're doing this. We're, we're really trying to pre- pressure this government to, to do what they're supposed to do, which is to, to lead and protect us. Yeah, right? well, the, the stuff up in Guelph is just drives me nuts. I, I mean, know. we have always, I think, taken great pride in the fact that, you know, we have probably more water resources than any other country in the world, uh, which is why they're starting to look to us right now. 
but instead of cherishing it, it's something special and something that's it's life-giving. We give it away. For a song. Give it away. Exactly. To a huge corporation that makes incredible profits on it. I mean, they're taking it just, you know, just our neighboring community, Nestle's draining, taking water from the aquifer. They're taking water from six nations, uh, reserve, like this, from the six yeah. nations without permission at the same time as people in six nations also are struggling with access to consistently clean water. It, it's ju- just um, really, it's just uh, unacceptable. It's, well, really, it's an outrage is what it is. The, the the concern here, of course, is is government inaction, and that seems to be the the problem. And we've had isolated incidents of this even here, by the way. Yes. Yeah, and we've heard the stories. I know we carry them here on the on CHML uh, out in Flamborough. It's usually people that are on a well system, uh, and you know, especially in the summertime, all of a sudden there'll be some sort of contamination. Maybe somebody sprayed something someplace, whatever the case might be, and and they get a boiled water advisory. Maybe it lasts a week, couple of weeks, sometimes, but magnify that to entire communities. That yes. have them all the time, not yeah. for a couple of weeks, but all the time. I mean, that's 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 the breadth of the problem here that I don't think anybody seems to understand in the corner office of Queen's Park. I don't think so. And I, I, I will say that I'm as guilty of not understanding that because I've always lived on Lake Ontario. Yeah. And so, you know, we just put a pipe into Lake Ontario, we access our water, and then p- clearly, which I, was something I wasn't quite aware of, we just use Lake Ontario as a sewer. I mean, we dump our our sewage into it. So that was something that I didn't understand, I, that, that there are communities uh, where they completely rely on well water aquifer, and they cannot um, they cannot grow they can't if they don't have access to water that there's agriculture there's farms that can't you know look look after their livestock or their crops because they rather than they the, have access to water that that is being taken away by multinational corporations so you know there these issues are only getting worse and worse and I think underpinning all of this is the idea that we should have access we should know as residents of Ontario, who is who is protecting our water, who is monitoring it, and who's taking ultimate leadership to make sure that communities like all across Ontario, especially uh, the First Nations communities in Saul's riding, are, are looked after. I mean, it, it just is a complete... Um, uh, you know, it's a, it's really it's completely unbelievable that this is not a top of the agenda for this government or for any government. You're trying to do something about this. We'll talk about the town hall. I've got a couple of minutes left here. Uh, others will try from time to time to too. Uh, you know, the late Gord Downey, God bless him, uh, made this his life's work the last yes. couple of years of his life, and 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 create that awareness with the federal government. And he was pretty direct about it. And I thought that might have been a tipping point. Uh, but sadly, Gord died a couple of years ago, of course, and uh, and with it died the interest, I guess, that that he had generated. Uh, somebody's got to pick up the ball here. I mean, that's what we're looking for. And I, and I know that's one of the reasons the town hall is here, to try exactly. to, to gain that. So what, what's going to be happening? Well, we're, we're hosting the town hall tomorrow at the Westdale Theatre. And the idea is that we, just as we've discussed here, we want to make sure people understand what's at stake here. I think we want to make sure that people know that this isn't, you know, whether it's not something that's happening right now in your house, because you can turn on the tap, but this is still something that c- concerns you. And we want to hear what people, people's ideas about what they uh, think that the government should be doing about it. I mean, Saul and I are both members of Her Majesty's Loyal Opposition. I love saying that. Um, I think I might meet the Queen someday. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. But but as is our job to hold the government to account, to present the ideas, to, to tell them this is what people are saying about the, the issue of water. And so we're really hoping to bring 
people together to create some momentum, to pick up on, you know, some people like Gord Downey and others, especially, you know, indigenous water watchers who are leading the charge on this. There is leadership out there, just doesn't have to be at Queen's Park. Okay, Westdale Theatre tomorrow, what time? It's between 4 and 6 o'clock. Okay, and uh, just show up. And, uh, exactly. Co- and come ready to it's do free. something. It's actually, yeah, free admission, by the way. Yeah. Uh, guys, thanks for the great work that you are, you're doing here and to create this awareness. Uh, Saul, here's hoping the next time you're on the program it's to talk about better days and, and maybe a better condition up there, too. Uh, don't give up the fight, okay? Yeah, thank you very much. All right, Glad great to, to have you. Sandy, thank you, thanks too. Thanks very much, Bill. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.